Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including gathering times and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Good morning, Salem Alliance. Welcome to church. My name is Matt Boda. I serve as the academic dean at RTI here across the street. Thank you. And I used to... Uh, Used to be on staff here at Salem Alliance from 97 to 2003, and the last time I preached here was December 2003, 19 years ago. So, let's see if I still have it, okay? (laughs) So permit me, if you would, to review the facts of Christmas as traditionally rehearsed this time of year. A significantly overweight male sporting disheveled beard and red and white clothing spends his waking hours from January 1st through Christmas Eve directing a diligent but vertically challenged workforce in a strategic gift distribution plan that allows nice rather than naughty people of many shapes and sizes, races and religions around the globe to awake Christmas morning to no less than one wonderfully suited gift. According to the facts, this plump and chunky male, alternately known as Santa, Santa Claus, Chris Kringle, or jolly old Saint Nick, delivers his goods in a few short hours using nothing more than a sleigh and eight or nine reindeer, depending on which tradition you subscribe to. His reindeer, Dasher and Dancer, Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid, Donner and Blitzen, and occasionally Rudolph, leads Santa on his appointed rounds from which no blizzard or hurricane or typhoon or earthquake has ever kept him. Think about that. Those facts are amazing. Someone who lives far from me watches over how I live, cares enough to make a gift just for me, and tops it off by personally delivering it to me in my home. Those are the facts of Christmas as told in many homes. And if your home is one of them, now would be a wonderful time to reach over and place your hands on your child's ears because I'm about to call those facts into question. Recently, a group of engineers studied the possibility of Santa being able to pull all that off on Christmas Eve. They established these facts. Two billion billion children under age 18 live on planet Earth. Santa doesn't visit hopes that don't celebrate Christmas, so his workload is reduced by 85% to a mere 378 million kids. Now that's a problem. Assuming 3.5 children per household, Santa has 108 homes to visit, assuming one good child per home. Thanks to time zones and the Earth's rotation, Santa has 31 hours to do his work, which works out to about 967.7 visits per second. Simply put, at every home, Santa has about one one thousandth of a second to park, hop out, jump down the chimney, fill stockings, distribute presents, eat snacks, get back in his sleigh and reach the next home on his journey, which explains why it is very pointless to stay up late and watch for Santa. To cover the globe, Santa's sleigh needs to move at about 3,000 times the speed of sound, significantly quicker than the 15 miles per hour that your conventional reindeer moves. That is a problem. Those engineers also calculated that if each child receives nothing more than a two-pound medium-sized Lego set, Santa's sleigh has to carry around 500,000 tons. On land, conventional reindeer pull about 300 pounds. If we grant that flying reindeer are special, and can pull off 10 times that amount, Santa would need about 360,000 reindeer to pull his load. One more problemo. 600,000 tons, traveling 650 miles per second, creates enormous air resistance which heats up reindeer like spacecraft re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. (laughs) 
the lead reindeer dasher and dancer would absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. They would burst into flames instantaneously, <laughs> torching those behind them and creating deafening sonic booms. Those reindeer would be vaporized in a mere 4.26 thousandths of a second, about the time Santa reaches his fifth house on his trip Christmas Eve. But it wouldn't matter, as in accelerating to 650 miles per second, Santa would be subject to forces of 17,500 Gs. Now, a 250-pound Santa, which to me seems a little slim, uh, would be pinned to the back of his sleigh by over 4.315 million pounds of force, instantly reducing him to a quivering blob of pink goo. And therefore, if Santa did exist, He's dead now. <laughs> now that tradition, told and retold year after year, pushes the true story of Christmas into the shadows. Maybe you remember the story of the first Christmas from the Bible. And I want to invite you today to come with me and grab your phone, grab your Bible, whatever you use, and uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And in it we read one of the stories of Christmas. And this story of Christmas begins with well-known uh, words, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And there was a poll, a census that was taken. Everyone returned to their house to register. Joseph took Mary, his wife, who was pregnant out to here. They made this long trip to the town where Joseph's people were. And while they were there, Mary delivered a baby. And we read about it in the words of Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. And it says, and while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now here is where we enter the Christmas episode that we want to focus on today as we continue our series, The Realms of Glory, and we focus in on a series of Christmas stories connected to the angels. The story of the first Christmas is filled with unlikely participants. Matthew chapter 13 describes Joseph, the father of Jesus, as being a craftsman. He was a blue-collar worker, relatively unknown, even where he lived. Mary is a 13 or 14-year-old girl, a young virgin. She doesn't appear anywhere before that story. John and Elizabeth, and the part that they play, is limited just here to this story. But perhaps the most unlikely participants of all appear at this point in the story as we read about them, as we look at the verse that follows in verse 8. It says, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. By far, anyone reading Luke's gospel, if it were possible in Jesus' day, would be surprised. Actually, they would be flabbergasted that shepherds are in this story. And let me tell you why. In Jesus' day, shepherds dotted the hills like baristas in our everyday lives now. They were everywhere. There were hundreds of thousands of sheep on the hillsides of Israel, and those sheep needed shepherds, both men and women. And first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote that over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in Jerusalem during the feast of Passover each year. Bethlehem is a mere five or six miles outside of Jerusalem, and it carried the lion's share of producing those sheep for Jerusalem. And those shepherds, while crucial to Israel's religion, were actually viewed as outcasts 
and misfits in society. They were considered unclean because of the community, because of the vocation that they had. Every day their life was filled with dirty, messy, smelly sheep, manure, Bloods from, blood was from cuts and scrapes, and the insects that buzzed around them. And thus, by Mosaic law, shepherds were never allowed. They were never clean enough to worship with God's people at the temple. And as such, they were treated as outsiders. And that treatment had its consequences. Do you know that in Jewish court, their testimony, the testimony of a shepherd was not allowed, not permissible. They were that distrusted. There were lepers on the bottom of the castes of Israel, and then there were shepherds. Now zoom in on these folks for a minute. Stuck in an end-end job, dismissed as witnesses, banned from the courts and temple, tucked away out of sight up in the fields. They were in a boring and tedious job. These unlikely characters know the part that they play in society, and it is a very, very small role. They spent their entire lives taking care of sheep, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, all throughout their life. To put it bluntly, they are the nobodies of Jesus' day. And then you look at verse 9 and what takes place. We read, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, Lying in a manger. This collected, this collection of rejected, unpopular, and nameless sheep herders are the first folks that God tells when his son comes to earth. The coming of the Messiah, the one who would change the world. These nobodies are the first to know. Now, this weekend's message focuses on the changes, the transformation that took place in the lives of these shepherds because of these angels visiting. And the first change that we see in them has to do with identity. Their first encounter with God causes them to realize that they're not nobody. The world around them, their culture, the lies they believe tell them that they are nobodies, but that all changes here. Now, Jamie and I have a herd a tribe, a gaggle of grandchildren. We have 13 of them. One is in heaven, 12 are on earth, six live in Minnesota, six live in Calgary. And each one is unique and special. And man, we love our grandkids. And we can remember times throughout the birth of these grandchildren who are all nine and under. We can remember times when their parents would call us and they would uh, do something special to let us know that another Boda grandchild was on the way. And it was always significant. It was always special. And something inside of us felt so cool that we were the first to know. You know what it's like to be the first to be told the good news? To be chosen first? Just wanted you to know we're expecting. Just got back from the lake and we got engaged. Just got off the phone with our realtor. We bought a house. We just wanted you to know there's nothing like it. And when you're chosen to hear the news first, somewhere deep in your heart, you realize how special you are, that you're not a nobody, that you're a somebody. And that's what the shepherds experience. They hear the good news first. Don't be afraid, the angel said. I am telling you the good news, the good news that will bring joy to all people eventually, but you're first. Perhaps for the first time in their lives, they recognize their value. They understand their worth 
They run face first, smack dab into their somebodiness, and they feel like they belong. Imagine those shepherds as they run and hurry to Bethlehem, as it dawns on them, wow, God chose us first to tell us this news. We're not nobodies. And in truth, they never were nobodies. The scriptures tell us that all human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made from the moment of their conception. And from their conception, these shepherds had no idea who they were because of the lives they believe and the identity their culture thrust upon them. But God's actions tell them otherwise. As C.S. Lewis once put it, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Or as David put it in Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, O God? Human beings that you should care for them, yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and with honor. J.B. Phillips once told a story that helps us to understand this. It's the story of a senior angel who's given the responsibility of showing a junior angel around the universe and all the galaxies that God has created. They flit across infinite distances of space until they come to one particular galaxy that has 500 billion stars. And as they draw near to the star that we call our sun and its circling planets, the senior angel points to a small and rather insignificant sphere that is turning slowly on its axis. It looks as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the younger angel whose mind has just been boggled by the grandeur and the glory of all that he has seen. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel pointing with his finger. Well, it looks rather small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about it? It didn't seem all that impressive. And then he listened in stunned disbelief as the senior angel told him that this planet small and insignificant and not overly clean, was the renowned visited planet. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Why would he do something like that? Upon hearing the explanation, the little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures on that floating ball? I do, said the older angel. And I don't think he'd like you calling them creeping and crawling creatures in that tone of voice. As strange as it seems to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel stared with blank eyes. Such a thought was beyond his comprehension. And sometimes it's beyond ours. You see, God doesn't reveal his glory to nobodies. God doesn't send his angels to people who don't matter. God doesn't choose people to be the first to hear the good news un unless they're valued. And what, what happens in verses 9 through 12 actually happens. It's a spectacular declaration from a loving God that all people matter, that there are no nobodies. You look at Luke's words again, and you read them. And it's all about inviting them individually into the experience of meeting the Christ. The transcendent came to them. An angel said exactly what God wanted to these citizens of that second-rate, small and dirty, fifth-rate ball who carry around in their heads this lie that they're nobodies. I've got good news for you. Messiah's been born, and you're going to meet him. So what did God say to that angel he sent to speak to them? Probably something like this. The first folks that I want to meet my son 
And the first people I want to provide as witnesses to his birth are those whose testimony has been totally rejected by the world. And when those shepherds are invited into that, their identity is totally remade. Their lives morph from nobody's to somebody's. So how about you? Do you know who you are? Psalm 139 tells us that God is a God who knows us well when we sit down, when we get up, when we go out, when we come back in. He's familiar with all our ways. He watches over us. We even, he even knows the things that we're going to say before we say those things. And at no point in our lives do we disappear out of his sight. His eye is on you at all times, and that's a beautiful thing. And he chose to share the good news with you. And you are not a nobody. Now, that's not the only transformation to take place in the shepherds because accompanying this change in identity is a change in purpose in their lives. They shift from being spectators to being participants. We read beginning in verse 13. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. Remember what I said earlier? Zoom in on these folks for a minute. Stuck in a dead-end job, dismissed as witnesses, banned from the temples and the courts, Tucked away out of sight up in the hills. The shepherd's world was very small. Pretty much everyone's world was small in those days. But theirs is particularly narrow and small and tight. I recently came across a survey commissioned by a luggage company that wanted to discover the travel preferences and experience of Americans. The results surprised me. 11% of those polled had never traveled outside the state in which they were born. 54% had visited 10 states or less. 13% had never flown in an airplane. And then I discovered later, 63%, basically two-thirds of Americans, have never been off of U.S. soil. They have never even taken advantage of the beauty of the country to the north of us called Canada. <laughs> now that's not unlike these shepherds. Rejected and considered nobody tied to a specific plot of land, focused specifically solely on their sheep, their lives were very narrow, and they were spectators to most of life. And then, this most spectacular event of events happens. Remember Jen talking about the 400 silent years a few weeks ago? Four centuries of waiting to hear God's voice. And then suddenly it's broken without warning. The skies are filled with this vast hope, host of angels, this army as Luke calls them. And suddenly, their drab, dreary, plodding, and tedious lives fill with purpose as they have an experience. With the angels' proclamation, these lifelong spectators suddenly become participants in the most beautiful story of all time. And their lives are transformed. All of that led to their worldview changing, and their lives are forever ruined for the ordinary. 
Look at verses 17 and 18 and what happens to them. After seeing Jesus, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. Suddenly and without warning, their lives are filled with new purpose. They go back to their shepherding responsibility. They go back to work, but they go as changed people. Now, participants in the story, and everyone they run into hears the story, and they're astonished to hear it. Now, a quick note on something here. Shepherds don't leave their sheep. They sleep. They do everything with them. Their flock is their life, their investment. It's that into which they pour their time and their energy. And if they own the flock, their investment of money. It was the only line of work that they've ever known. So leaving their sheep would mean financial suicide if anything happened. And when they witness the angels praise and say to one another, we got to go to Bethlehem, that tells you something. Something had captured their imagination. Their lives go from spectators to participants, and as a result, they're forever ruined for the ordinary. They are now more than shepherds. Oh, they're shepherds, but they're more than shepherds. Now, many of us, if we're honest, will admit that like with these shepherds, our jobs can rule our lives. In work, we live and move and have our being. Some of it is good. You're phenomenal at the hospital or in the classroom or at the office or shop or wherever you work on the job site. But that workspace, your work life, was never intended to be the dominant reality of your life. I love to work. I have workaholic tendencies. But that is never intended to be the dominant reality of my life or yours. Those shepherds went back to the fields having experienced something that forever ruined them for the ordinary. They went back to work with a worldview unlike they came to the fields, off the fields to Bethlehem with. Their understanding of all of this and the grandeur of all of this meant amazing things for their lives. They're no longer spectators. They participate. They took their place as communicators who had found themselves caught up in a story they knew nothing about. And like those shepherds, we are designed to be participants in the story in the places where we work. Paul writes, Set your mind, oh sorry, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And then out of that mindset of understanding that there's a whole other world that exists outside of the physical, which is totally legitimate, but we understand that there's another world. We actually lean into that world and we tell our story when we first saw Jesus, how we first heard about him, when we first met him, so set your mind on things above and then go back to wherever your life is found and pray for opportunities and make him, allow him to be the dominant reality of your life and out of that, share your story of how you met him, just like the shepherds. So how about you? Like, What's the grand purpose of your life? What are you participating in right now? God's got something big going on. Are you part of it? Are you participating in it? Here, Salem Alliance, here in this city, here in this state, are you participating in what God's doing around the world? Now, a quick, a quick aside. My focus this weekend is on the transformation that takes place in the shepherds' lives. But over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how 
angels are such a part of the Christmas story, and my passage is, is no different than the other ones. But if, if you've been watching, you'll notice that a single angel kicks things off with the shepherds. And in verse 13, that angel is joined by what Luke calls a vast host of others, the armies of heaven. And you may not have been here last week with Ephraim, or the week before with Rob, the week before that with Jennifer, as they've all talked about this. But I just want to remind you today that angels are real. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent to uh, serve those who will inherit salvation. They're, they're there to serve us. And Hebrews chapter 13 says, don't be afraid or fall, fall behind in offering hospitality to strangers because by offering hospitality to strangers, some people have entertained angels. And then we read in Psalm 91, that not only do angels show up in our lives when we don't know it, but God sends angels to specifically protect people. We know they're powerful. We know that they carry out God's plan. We know that they are messengers of his good news. So a quick story that might encourage you that the scriptures are true. And it's a story, I don't know if I've ever shared it with Salem Alliance, but when I was uh, 18 years old, I had a car accident on a Canadian highway, black ice, and uh, I hit a semi-trailer truck head on, on an undivided highway, and uh, the truck basically drove through my car, and three of my friends were killed. And uh, I spent the next minutes after that accident uh, uh, taking my friends and putting them in sleep sleeping bags in two feet of snow. It was all very real and all very visceral to me. Later that week, a couple of gals who were in the car behind me, which was driven by a buddy of mine, and my buddy had asked them to stay in the car because he knew it was going to be carnage, and uh, they caught up with me three or four days later, and they said, um, they asked me the question, who, who got out of that car with you? And I said, nobody got out of that car with me. He said, yeah, we watched somebody. I said, nope. I said, actually, this person was there, this person was there, this person was there. I dealt with it in this way. And they just said, we watched someone get out of the car with you. If you were to see the car today, and it was to be put on the screen, you would look at it and say, how did Matt ever survive? How did he live through that? Well, now we know. And I knew nothing about it. But I want you to know today, this story, and the story of human life and human history tells us that people often experience God through angels. That his angels come to help and protect and even speak to us. And if you don't think that happens, ask anyone who's a follower of Jesus from the Middle East how often that God shows up through angels and shows up through dreams. The Advent season reminds us that throughout the scriptures and throughout human history, People often experience God through angels. They are real. And we can pray for God to send them. We don't pray to the angels. We pray for God to send them to help. Now, back to the story. Because there's one final transformation in these shepherds, and some think that it's the best one. They experience a change in identity, a change in purpose, but we also find out that they experience a change in joy. We read in verse 20. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen, and it was just as the angel had told them. Together, this flock of shepherds headed back home to their flocks, telling people along the way, glorifying, praising God for everything they'd experienced. Inside of them is a joy that was non-existent in their lives prior to their experience in Bethlehem. Now, have you ever come away with something that you've experienced so filled with joy? Meeting a newborn baby who's related to you. Or the smile on your face at the end of a wonderful first date. Right now, 
Two, it's probably done. Two billion people around the world are watching a World Cup final that went to double overtime. I have no idea who won it, but when it's won, there will be some very, very happy people somewhere in the world. All this stuff that goes on, receiving a Christmas bonus, coming home from a retreat where God really broke into your life, seeing the ducks and beeves win a football game. The examples are endless. And that's what's going on in these shepherds at this point. They're filled with joy. There's no doubt that this is a major change in their lives from life prior to meeting Jesus. There is this increase in joy that is both mysterious and almost inexplicable. And from a biblical vantage point, that is no surprise. Do you know how often the scriptures speak about joy? It's a major theme in the Bible. Joy is addressed 165 times in Scripture. The idea of bless, blessed, and blessing appears over 500 times. God cares about joy. Wouldn't you like to, anyone want to plant a church with me that we call Church of Joy, and every week a comedian appears? Would we not want to do that? Okay? It's part of what he offers. The psalmist in Psalm 16, verse 11, says that there is fullness of joy in God's presence in our lives. David declares that God can restore our joy in Psalm 51. Jeremiah says that God's words become a joy to us. They make our hearts delight. Jesus says that his Father loves answering our prayers so that we can experience joy. And then he also says that no one can take away the joy that he gives to us and that he gives us his joy. You are given Jesus' joy. And finally, the Apostle Paul writes that when we experience the kingdom of God, joy will be a part of the picture. It's a part of what we experience in knowing Christ. Now that word is for some of you. Because your lives are meant to be filled with joy. I'm not downplaying any of the pain, any of the trauma, any of the tragedy that you've experienced in life. I'm not underplaying anything that's really hard right now in your life. And there could be all kinds of things. But I want to just ask you, what's your joy level right now? Someone defined joy as the deep sense of pleasure, delight, gladness and well-being that is independent of circumstances in our lives. How does that definition fit you right now? And if your joy tank is feeling quite empty, might it be that this week is a good time to reacquaint yourself with the babe of Bethlehem just like the shepherds did and their joy was full. So, as we close this message, can I encourage you to do one thing this week? Make one thing, make one person your goal for this week. Be willing to take your own trip to Bethlehem just like those shepherds did. Go looking for a baby who was born there. Start a fire, curl up on the couch, go for a walk, and then listen slowly or read slowly to the first couple of chapters of the Gospels of Matthew, Matthew 1 and 2, and Luke, Luke 1 and 2, because they tell you the Christmas story and let the babe of Bethlehem speak to you about who you are in him. Let him speak to you about what the purpose of your life is and let him fill you with joy in his presence because that is the greatest gift of all. May this season be filled with his presence. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the one who sent his son, we thank you that you sent him. And we see in these shepherds a prototype of how you change lives and how we understand who we are 
about how we understand what the purpose of our lives is, how we understand what real joy is because of you. I pray for these, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would fill them with those things this season. Fill them with the knowledge of who they are and what their life is to be about and where their joy comes from. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.